Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and serve as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. We're excited to be releasing a new set of interviews. We took a little pause in recording after RE Plus and are ramping back up for 2024. Today, we talked to the CEO of Conexus Energy, Greg Ritterbush. Greg was a West Point graduate, went on to an incredible career in the utility space, helping to lead one of the most interesting utilities in Minnesota to help drive the energy transition. Greg's retiring and reflect on his experience in the space, but also his vision of where we're headed. Utilities play a significant role in moving forward, driving and scaling renewable energy, bringing more to the grid, helping us manage the grid in a way that's reliable and affordable. And we're going to talk more about that with Greg and explore the opportunities and challenges ahead. I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Greg, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Really pleased to be here today with you. You've got a, such an amazing experience and career in, in energy. But before getting to that, you know, I know you're a West Pointer. Uh, you know, what was your interest and commitment to service and where did you grow up to, to get your appointment from? I uh, grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I had a senatorial appointment. Uh, and I kind of grew up uh, in the 70s when energy and all that was a, a big issue. And um, uh, but, but going to West Point for me was kind of a calling, uh, an opportunity to be military leader and ultimately a civilian leader. And uh, I was kind of a shy and nerdy person. And that doesn't work at West Point. And uh, <laughs> so, so I uh, went there and graduated in, in 1980 and uh, had, had mainly career experiences. It was a quiet time uh, from a conflict standpoint. Thank, thank God, right? Uh, the, not like today when, uh, when uh, young men and women go in the service, they're going to be in harm's way. Um, but I served uh, uh, for 10 total years. And I was an engineering graduate uh, and served in the uh, engineers in the Army. You know, so yep. I did war planning. We, we built things during uh, for theater of operations support, various things like that. Uh, but finished up uh, pretty much down in Georgia. And from there, I went on to doing a, a full-blown engineering degree at Georgia Tech. Yeah, I think folks aren't, aren't as familiar with the West Point being an engineering school, but really it's the one of the leading engineering schools in the whole country. We're recording this before the Army-Navy game this weekend. It'll probably come out afterwards. Any predictions? Army's going to win. Outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. I guess I was blessed to go to the game that they broke the, uh, you know, multiple year <laughs> losing streak to Navy and was sitting in the sector of the, the Army's uh, box and surprised when everyone got up and rushed the field. <laughs> it was awesome. It was, it was a pretty yeah. sad period of time, but they have a chance of taking the Commander's Trophy this year. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Yep. Well, well, excellent. So um, I'll come back to the questions around your, your leadership experience because it really, you know, I think for me personally, being a vet and knowing how many vets are in this space, uh, in the clean energy space, it has become a second mission for a lot of folks. And I actually talk uh, to a lot of colleagues who have have experience in Iraq and Afghanistan are driven by that, but also the leadership experience you get in the military and how it helps you lead uh, a growing startup or a, a large utility like you've done. I think people, uh, you know, 
really um, don't always recognize the value until they actually see it firsthand of what that military experience brings. So thank you for your service. Absolutely. And it does, it does translate across. I think from your own service, you know, that there's things that you can take and they clearly, they clearly are value. And then the rest that are not, you park them and, and you, right. you on. Yep. So engineering school, was it energy or was it engineering first? And you just happened to get into energy? It was, um, uh, it, uh, I did a master's in mechanical and it was in, uh, it was in energy, thermal systems, things like that. Yeah. And uh, when I graduated from tech, I had an opportunity to work as a development engineer in clean technologies for combustion, for industrial processes. So really early on, they had professional experience in efficiency, clean energy. How do you do it? What are the technologies? And I did that for a number of years and then um, uh, started to, oddly enough, uh, I worked for an organization called Gas Research, which is similar to those who are listening to EPRI, Electric Power Research. Oh, yeah. And I sponsored a portfolio of development uh, technologies in uh, natural gas utilization. And at that point, it was still very early stage. How do you burn natural gas at the lowest environmental impact, the highest efficiency? Did those things. And what I liked the most was the business of technology and how technology can transform uh, various in various ways, industries or applications. And I had a chance to go back to business school in Chicago, and I did. And I came out of that uh, as a management consultant working for utilities. Oh, interesting. So when you were on the consulting side, what led you to go in-house? At, was it Connexus the first place you went in-house? Uh, it was Great River Energy. Um, and oh, right, right. What, and what, what happened was I, I had the opportunity to consult across uh, many different utilities, a couple, couple of municipals, a couple of cooperatives. And I was mainly in the... Uh, business development and and strategy space, uh, working for executives of utilities. One of my clients was a Minnesota cooperative, uh, a large one. It was a generation transmission company. And uh, they asked me to come join rather than uh, advise. And kind of like eating your own dog food, it was, all right, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going to take my own advice and do the things that I've been consulting on. And that's what happened. Uh, that's amazing. That was in the uh, 2005 timeframe, still pretty early, given that the Energy Policy Act here in Minnesota that created the Renewable Energy Standard occurred in 2007. So if you really think about how time plays on this whole space, and you're a veteran of it, uh, has has evolved remarkably over you know, 15 years. It's been absolutely, just, yeah, yeah. I, it's funny you say that because I, I talk often about how, from a federal level, the the you know George Bush led uh, with the Democratic Congress Energy Security Act really got the ITC out there, got things moving, and then you bring in the the American Recovery Act and the plethora of funds that got poured into shovel ready green projects, sort of got the the rocket ship moving. And then broad efficiencies yeah. across the market that we're seeing today. So for folks that are, are not familiar with uh, first co-ops and then I, I guess connects, can you talk for a second about uh, the utility you've been leading and you know how it differs from maybe other utilities in the space? So Connexus is an example of a distribution cooperative. And so what's that mean is in historically it would purchase wholesale power 
that power delivered by transmission, you know, the big wires to substations, which I think we've all seen driving around. And then our job was from substation to consumer. And so it was that old space where you thought of generate power somewhere far away at large scale because of economies, move it by high voltage lines to minimize line losses and, and, and improve efficiencies, and then one-way street delivered to the consumer. And, and while that is pretty old thinking at this point, the grid is completely transformed. Uh, that was the background in which companies like like us, uh, we grew up. I mean, we, yeah. we uh, were formed in about 1936, and uh, we've been serving ever since. And, uh, and then so, and it is a business model where you're owned by the consumer. Okay. So, you know, mutual insurance companies, things like that, similar. And these companies owned for mutual benefit with other cooperatives for scale, they put, they put together these generation companies that built the power plants of the past. And, uh, and, and then we are governed by the consumers. So every consumer of Conexus, of which we have like 145,000 accounts, um, owns a piece of Conexus. They vote for directors that are on our board. So when I and the leadership team of Conexus meet with our board, we're meeting with the consumers of electricity of Conexus. And it's different than investor owns who serve right. you know, investor pur- purposes, but they all work. And then municipals themselves are different, but a lot of the countries served by uh, by uh, companies like ours, we are in the twenty top largest of about uh, eight hundred and thirty nationally, and uh, we uh, don't have a profit motive, so we don't look for like investor owns return on assets. We are what is the best affordable cost we can achieve for the consumer. Now you might argue. There's a little bit of both worlds in that because sure. we, we invest in assets that have to perform. But at the end of the day, uh, it connects us consumers expect the power to be there all the time. And they expect it to be affordable. And then really recently, if you let me use recently 10 to 15 years, mm-hmm. the renewable part of it is a passion for some consumers, but actually some uh, of the uh, green interests out there might be surprised that not all consumers think of that, right? Sure, of course, yeah. I want to wake up in the morning. I want to flip the lights on, uh, and I want it to be there all the time. And, and but we do have uh, consumers that are at both ends of the scale. Some very passionate, and we've been an innovative utility. Some which are, I just want it to be there all the time and be affordable. Yeah. And so, cooperatives serve across that spectrum. And that's a few words on Conexus. Yeah, let's go back to that innovative utility piece of it because I think it's such an important. You've you've witnessed that real transition of a business model from the decentralized grid or the centralized grid to what we're becoming the you know you you term grid edge, but the decentralized grid, right? You're, it's really sort of a new world for many folks in the industry. When you think back, when our you know the 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 grid was the engineering feat of of the last century and really powered our economy, got us moving. We're at a place now where consumers, uh, especially corporate consumers, you know, a decade ago, they paid their utility bill, right? They maybe negotiated a rate, but they paid the utility bill. Today, Google has a sophisticated energy procurement shop that has a policy team that's going into states and shaping the, the policy so they can get the renewable energy they need for their data centers, for instance. And others are 
doing very similar, more sophisticated approaches. Um, but not everyone has that capacity to do it. A lot of folks are just following and taking action. How have you sort of led the utility through that transition, um, which you're still very much undertaking right now? So instead of thinking about the distributed grid, I think about the integrated grid. So so we just talked about how electricity was kind of like generated far away, super highway to the distribution area, and then distributed one way to the consumer. Today, um, it is, you have to think about all three working together. Where do you put renewable assets? Where do you put storage? Why? How do you operate a grid that has electric vehicles that can charge really at any time that could contribute significantly to peak demands. You have consumers that wish, and we encourage this, that wish to do some self-generation. And so you have a grid where electricity is flowing in multiple directions. There are multiple interests for a variety of reasons in investing in that grid. And then uh, here's Conexus trying to facilitate the clean energy transition and getting, getting all these things to work together. That's what we've been about. And so I'll just give one or two examples. And uh, yeah, please. Yeah. So, so early on, people thought that renewables would add cost to the grid. Okay. Well, they don't, it doesn't, at least our experience to date. And I'll give you one example as we started putting solar at distribution, which is localized, not far away. Right. Um, we looked at the economics between taking wholesale energy being delivered to us for distribution versus generating it closer to the consumer. 30% less cost than wholesale. Now, it's not a fair direct comparison because the grid's on all the time, right? And solar right. or wind is on intermittently. But I'll tell you what, when you're paying a certain number, call it 80, and if you can pay 55, you're going to want as much of that local power as possible. So that yeah. that's one example. And By the then, way, if you add a battery, maybe you can capture that, and maybe it's seventy five, but it still uh, is in there. Yeah. And we do have batteries. We we were yeah. the first the first utility to implement uh, megawatt class batteries, and we did it at a solar site. And the reason we did it was to lower our load management cost. And the the batteries at that point in time, because of federal incentives, I think you're you know quite aware of the benefits from tax and investment standpoint. They wanted to see solar working with batteries, and so did we. So we were able to lower our cost to manage our peaks significantly by doing those first batteries. And now we're doing batteries at a substation, and it doesn't sound oh so what? Well, a big deal <laughs> because. Yeah, a sub, we have a substation that was straining to serve at the hottest days of the summer because everything had grown up around it. So instead of doubling the size of the substation, we simply added a battery for topping capacity at a much lower cost with more capabilities. So rather than a transformer or more lines coming in, now you have something that has the optionality of what a battery can do, but serve that immediate need at much better economics. So and now maybe I'll give one other example. Yeah, please. The other thing that's different today is how do you engage consumers, because many of them want to be engaged in helping manage their own costs and use. It could be a motivation, it's solely their bill. It could be a motivation where they want to be more efficient. So we're the first one to offer, it's called peak time rebate. So as we get near peak days, and let's say you, we had the good fortune of you being on our system, 
we'd send you an, e- an email if you had signed up for it and say, hey, John, please tomorrow between the hours of four to seven, reduce your use. We pay you to reduce your use. Right. And we measure that because we have, uh, you know, real-time telemetry on our grill, on our grid. Yeah. So that transition to new sources that are locally producing consumers that want to be part of managing their own grid and then to look at new asset economics that had never been cons- considered before. Those are the things that we won't claim we're expert at all that yet, but that, but we have been working hard on those capabilities as part of this clean energy transition. And, and one of interesting things for me is the role you guys have played also really championing policy in Minnesota on these issues. And, you know, I think when you, for, Folks that have, I mean, I've been in the solar industry now for for a while, but there's many folks that are like, oh, Minnesota, right? <laughs> like, I get Florida. Well, Florida doesn't have it, but Minnesota's doing great. Um, you know, what what role did you see as a leader of the utility and then a leader of the industry in helping to sort of championing those policies um, so that, you know, whether it be the RPSs or the, the um, community solar stuff that's happening in in Minnesota. And I want to leave the agrovoltaics piece to the end because I know Rob's sitting there because I didn't want to talk about those pieces for sure. But, you know, what was your role as a leader sort of in, involved in those conversations? So so we're a co-op, not investor owned, and we have an ethic to benefit the overall consumer and also the communities in which we serve. Sounds a little flag waving, but it's really true. Yeah. So as we've learned things, we've had the ethic of, of, of sharing when people want to hear about it. Right. <laughs> and so we don't walk to people on a street corner and say, hey, here, here it is. So when we have an opportunity to testify at a committee hearing about what we're doing with respect to solar and its economics and the debate going on, but, you know, is it less money, more money? And we say, OK, here's what it works for us. It's cheaper. Here's why. And then when we do batteries, uh, you'd be surprised at how many people have had it just the battery just sitting there. It's not moving. It's, it's just absorbing energy and discharging it, but people want to come see them and we want them to come see them so they can envision what elements of the distributed grid at a local level might be. And so we're doing that because of that ethic, community serving, members serving. And if someone has an interest in what we're doing, we share uh, what, what we've learned and uh, so, so it's no more complicated than that. Yeah, excellent. So I do want to, you know, take a moment and, and recognize Rob Davis, who helped set this up and his his role being a champion in agrovoltaics. It's a story that, you know, I've had Rob in the podcast, but I talk a lot about it uh, uh, in the advocacy stuff I do, because I think folks don't recognize the potential that solar can play in helping the agriculture community uh, address some of the issues around pollinators, et cetera. And you guys have really helped lead some of this work. Can you talk for a second about sort of what drives that, what benefits you've found from agrovoltics? Well, can I just, I want to rewind it back to pollinators themselves. And I won't. Yeah, please. So uh, I was there during the day that uh, we had one of our staff come to a senior team meeting. We were talking about, we had, we have a tiny solar array at our headquarters at the time was the biggest in the state, 245 KW, if you believe it. Wow. Yeah. And decision, and we were saying, what are we going to do uh, for? And, and we were going to put gravel down. And and someone comes in and says, we should do, we should put pollinator plantings, deep rooted plantings, upgrade the soil over time. Okay, we did that. A couple years later, someone walks in and said, we have someone that wants to put beehives, an apiary, within the border of our array. And I was at the meeting. I was thinking, what the heck is that? <laughs> 
And right. but then you sit back and and then you talk to the owner of that, and they have there's an, a social appetite out there for cleaner honey. You know the, the kind of things that you can say from from honey coming from solar uh, production, and and so we did it, and we found out there was a ton of interest. And that year, we as a co-op, most businesses have an annual meeting. We had an annual meeting, and then we had a couple of weeks later, we had um, a meeting where we shared what was going on with our honey production. I had mm-hmm. three or four times as many people want to hear about honey than hear about. <laughs> And we we realized, John, the thing from that was as a utility where we're having societal impact of the green energy transition, what can we do to make it more friendly? And, hey, we can make these assets that we're building near near population uh, improve the soil as we go, produce honey at at apiaries uh, that are located there, and then most recently – and this is something that uh, that Rob Davis brought to us is, you know, people are now thinking about growing crops within the uh, uh, ground surface of the array. We had NREL interested in looking that, at that with us. So back to your former question, and, you know, we get involved in sharing, said, sure, let's do that. Yeah. And so, um, so, so we that's kind of the steps along the way. And and we feel good about it. And it's just, you said this, it's just in its infancy, but we're doing it because it is an approach to make these assets friendlier to the localities in which they are located. So we're paying land rents locally rather than being 100 miles away. The energy is being delivered to the consumers that have that array and they're hosting it. The honey, they have a chance to, to come to our headquarters. They can buy some. We donate it to charity. And all those things so that when we ask a city council or planning and zoning at, in, a, in, a, in a city or a county that we'd like to put in the next one, uh, we're able to share with them. This is about overall community and how we approach things. Yeah, I mean, we're facing right now a frontline battle in solar and communities where uh, anti-solar forces are going in and getting permitting uh, uh fights and whatever at the local level in places like Ohio and other places. And when you tell the story of what it can do, it helps change the dynamic of how a farmer or others in the community think about these projects. You know, it's really important, the work that you guys have done, cutting, cutting the cutting edge here to help us translate this and hopefully deploy more, right? Because that's really what we're, from my perspective, what we need to be doing to solve the climate crisis in a way that that's uh, ecologically friendly. And I think this is a key part of it. So I, I want to flash forward and, you know, you're going to sit down with the, uh, your predecessor in, who, in 2030, and you're going to look back over the, ne- the, the last, uh, the last seven years of the industry, you know, what changes do you see happening, right? And what are the, some of the challenges that CEO is going to have, uh, sort of driving those changes, uh, as more and more pressure comes to scale up renewables, to, address the climate crisis to make sure we have a stable grid for consumers? Like what are some of the things they're going to be wrestling with? Well, they would have started uh, as they, as they took on that job with the utility who has top 5% in the country, sometimes 1% in terms of reliability. So Conexus consumers might endure a five minute outage once every two to four years. And so that's a standard that uh, is extremely high, and we've invested in it to maintain that. And plus, 
we we are just coming off of five years. We had an inflationary increase, but five years flat rates. So the first thing that consumers care about is, especially with the inflationary issues in our economy, can I afford electricity as we are using more and more of it? An electric vehicle, an induction heating in my in my in my home for for cooking. So you'd look back and say, were you able to maintain electricity as affordable for the enhanced uses that it's being put to? And second question, were you able with with this grid that's gone from this one-way simple highway to this multi-directional, and I think of the grid as just being also the physical plus the information layer that flows on top of it that allows us to optimize it, were you able to take that grid that has its humble beginnings and transition it to where it supports this really complex dynamic environment on the grid. So I, I would want to look back on that. Yeah. And then the one that, of course, is out there is what happened to energy supply? And were, were we able to locate enough new renewable resources? Um, you know, in 10 years, if you started today, you wouldn't have a nuclear plant even up and up and started under construction. So on a 10-year horizon, uh, you wouldn't even see that. But are we on a path to uh, engage uh, overall society uh, on the kind of resources that have to be out there broadly? And that means including localized on the roof, localized at the farm. A lot of people feel like that competes with the interests of the industry. We do not. Yeah. We see all those sources as being needed. If we have all this growth going on and we have challenges in siting. We better have as much localized as possible. So if I come back up uh, and I'm looking back at 2030, this integration of interests across edge of grid, distribution, and bulk, were we able to get that to happen? That's a tall order. We think it can, but it's going to require a lot of people to work together where in the past, you know, there's this competition going on, which is good, the part yeah. of our society. But in order to get this to happen, it's going to require so much alignment of interests and working together. And that's something that co-ops are good at doing. Greg, the first day that I got to my uh, unit in Germany, I had a, a platoon sergeant who was smart enough to realize here's a you know young lieutenant walking in. He pulled me by my you know, collared around the side of the motor pool. And he said, look, there's two types of leaders in the military. There's those that lead by rank and there's those that lead by example. It's like yeah. soldiers are going to follow those that rank them because they have to, but they want to follow someone that sets an example and sets a standard. And clearly a lot of utilities are trying to lead by rank. You guys have definitely led by example. Thank you for for doing that uh, and and setting the the way for for us to continue to, to move forward in the, in the fight against the climate crisis. If you could, we just went forward. I'm going to go back to the day of graduation at West Point, you could take yourself out for a beer and sit down and give yourself a piece of advice. What would you say? I think military leadership has so many parallels to to what we what we do today. But uh, there, for one thing, golden rule: always treat others as you would want yourself to be treated. Lead by example, right? Uh, you never expect anyone to do something you're not first willing to do yourself. And then be uh, also be able to listen to others. Let me share you my experience. So yeah. my first day after finishing officer basic, I, I went to my first unit. I was going to be a platoon leader. 
And my company commander puts me in front of, at this time, there were 70 people in a platoon. And my platoon sergeant, believe it or not, I still remember the gentleman's name to this day, Sergeant Furtado. He could eat nails for breakfast. <laughs> he was a Vietnam uh, 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 person, returned, came back. He kept his troops alive. And, and what I learned was, you may think you learned a lot at West Point. You may have thought you learned a lot at officer basic school. But here's someone that has survived. He's helped his troops survive. He has succeeded. And, and while that's a military example, it's the same thing. When you come out uh, into, into the working world at various levels and now where I am today, you do not have all the answers. And you, you need to be humble to be able to appreciate the expertise of others and to, and to allow them to contribute and help make overall team success. So there's so much from military leadership that, that translates across. And I'll tell you, I'm forever grateful for the opportunity I had to, to do that for 10 years before jumping into this career. Well, Greg, thank you so much for, for the time today and the, the leadership. Thanks to Rob Davis from your team for helping to set this up and Colin Young, who's a producer here at Experts Only. You know, really appreciate um, the work you've done over time. And I hope you get a chance to catch your breath and enjoy your retirement, but to stay in, stay in the fight because we've got a lot of work to do. Very good, John. Well, I'm not, uh, I'm going to be stay tuned in for sure. And thank you very much for your time today. It was just a very fun experience to do this. Thanks so much. You can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. <music>